Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. If you would join me this morning in Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2 as we continue in our study of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And today, we're in a familiar text, a familiar story. I was telling our pastors this morning that honestly, these 12 verses today, I could spend with you, I could spend with you two two months in these 12 verses and not exhaust everything that's here. I promise you, we won't lock you in here for the next two months, okay? But just know that, that there's no way that I can, in our time today, draw out everything that's here. And so I want to ask you just to, if you will, like, they, like my Sunday school teacher used to say to me when I was in kindergarten, just, you know, for me it was Velcro. Just Velcro your thinking cap on for a few moments today. Fasten your thinking cap. Try to really engage this with all of our hearts and souls and minds today. I was thinking this week in, in preparation for today, I preached from this text several years ago. Several years ago, I preached from this exact text when we finished the remodel of the worship center here, when we had what we called Open House Sunday, and we prayed over this new space that we had freshly remodeled, and all this that was redone a few years ago. And I was highly disappointed in the message that I preached. So this is my second chance at this text, all right? And uh, I, I did not take that passage, that message, and I'm not re-preaching it. Uh, today. I'm trying to do what I actually think this text says today. Um, I failed the last time. All right, so let's see if by God's grace we can get it right today. All right, we know from Mark chapter 1 that Jesus has been ushering in a new day, a new moment in history. He's doing it by the gospel. Uh, It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark 1, 1 says. And Jesus is going around and he's preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling people to repent and to believe the gospel. And Jesus, in in the verification of his Messiahship, is healing people. He's delivering people from bondage to unclean spirits, diseases, and things like this. You might find it interesting this morning, and I'm going to share something with you, but I'm going to caution you. So make sure you pick up the caution of this. The Lord had made a promise to Israel when they came out of Egypt. It's an incredible promise. It's found in Exodus 23 there. When the Lord said, if you shall serve, and you shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. Now, I want you to understand that the promise the Lord made to Israel while in the wilderness is not for us, okay? It's not for you and me, it's for Israel. And the the promise was that if they faithfully served the Lord instead of serving the gods of the people around them, that God would literally take their sickness away. Now, the reason I caution you is because I, I, I caution you from thinking that sickness means sin in our day. For Israel, though, God was telling them that if you live faithfully to me, that I will take your sickness away. I will literally bring constant healing to you. And so, 
When we get into the Gospel of Mark, we get into Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, and we see all these sick people that Jesus is ministering to, we need to remember that there's a representation here in this text of sin. It doesn't mean those people have sickness because of sin, but it's, it's not about the sickness, okay? It's about what's going on deeper than the sickness. And again, I warn you from making that application today. And so the problems that we're seeing is about this new day, right? This new day of Jesus ushering in this new moment in history by the gospel. And he is healing people. He is taking away sickness to tell us that he's ultimately here to take away sin. And the problems that we see with these people on the outside are not actually the problems. They're not actually the real problems. These problems on the outside of these people are not the deepest issue. Albert Moeller said this. He said, the world tells you the problem is outside you and the solution is inside you. The gospel tells you the problem is inside you and the answer or the solution is outside you. The world around us is telling us that all of our problems are outside of us, and now, but the answer is inside of us. But the gospel says, the Christian gospel says, the problem is actually inside of us and the solution is outside. You know, think about that. We need to hold on to that for a moment today as we go through this text. As we consider Mark 2, if you have a physical Bible with you or a digital copy, you, you, you might see this as well. But Mark 2 is broken up into four events. The first one is what we're going to look at today. The others we're going to look at next week. But they go together here because there's a pattern in each of these four episodes. It's that Jesus does something incredible, followed by someone asking him a question that's challenging him. For time today, I won't show them to you in chapter 2, but you can see them. Our text today, verses 1 through 12, they, they, challenge, the, the, they challenge and they show us the power, and there's a challenge to his power, and ultimately his authority to forgive sins. We're going to see that as well in different ways next week. But getting into our text today, I actually want to read for you, if I may, all 12 verses, all right? Would you find yourself there? And I'm going to read all 12 verses so you can get the whole story before we look at it in a little more depth. Verse number one, this is God's word. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Now that right there is Jesus' primary purpose. It's to preach the word. And they came unto, they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy. He's a, a paralytic. He's paralyzed. That's what the palsy means. He's being born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when he had broken it, and they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And there were 
certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within their hearts. I lost my place, forgive me. So reason, uh, why, verse 7, let me go back there. Why does this man, forgive me, it's been a long morning. Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves and said to them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he, took, he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. The text tells us that Jesus had come into the, the city of Capernaum. Let me throw the, we're going to throw that picture back up there for you. The city of Capernaum there, you can see a little bit of the foundation of some of the original housing to the uh, to the, on the left side is the, is the synagogue in Capernaum. The right side which looks like the big kind of structure there. Underneath that structure is what was considered to be the original house of Peter. But this is an idea of some of Capernaum. Obviously, there's, there's city places on both sides of those, those two big features on the end. But this gives you an idea of some of the housing. That right there is about three houses that you see right there in that structure. Jesus has gone into Capernaum, once again, the text tells us, we don't have an amount of time that he's been gone, but after, he, he, after some days, the text said, he goes in and he's, he's going to preach unto them. That was why he came. He didn't actually come to Capernaum to heal people. He didn't actually come to Capernaum to cast out unclean spirits. He came to preach the word, and so he preaches to them. And in this, we, this story, we see the dual the dual purpose. Mark does a really good job of giving dual purposes to the text. Chapter 2, like chapter 1, the latter part of chapter 1, continues with a focus on Jesus' authority. The question is asked about Jesus' power in this text. Does he have the power to forgive sins? It's not about the strength, it's about the authority. Does he have the credentials to do what he's doing? But then we see in this text, the other part of this is what I'm simply going to call the theme of faith. The theme of faith. So it's the authority of Jesus and then faith. So we're going to make four observations in this passage today. In those observations, we're going to see faith. Faith. With an effort, if I may say it like this, with an effort to just help you and me today be edified and built up as we leave, okay? Very practical observations about faith. And then, and here's what we'll see. We'll see it as the friendship in faith. We'll see the determined in faith, the object of faith, and the greatest outcome of faith, okay? So let's tackle this. First off, let's look at that friendship in faith. Look with me again at verse 3. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when Jesus saw, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. I want you to focus here. This is why I told you earlier. I want to really encourage you to lean into this for a minute. I want you to notice in those two verses, I want you to notice the pronouns that are used. 
we see, and they come unto him. They, these five, these four, and the man sick with the palsy, right? They come to him. Verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. He then speaks to the man who is sick of the palsy. This is paralytic, right? And he says, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Did you notice that? Jesus saw their faith. Theirs, plural. Thy, singular, your sins, forgiven. And I ask you this morning an observation. Whose faith, whose faith enabled this man to receive what he receives of Jesus? The text tells us it's their faith. Not his faith, but their faith. The one who's sick of the palsy, as we read, receives forgiveness of sins. He receives eventual healing. But the text does not say that Jesus saw his faith. So then what's the point here? What is the point of this? Think with me. You're in my shoes this morning. You're standing up here. You have the task of telling some Christians the point of this passage. What's the point? Their faith, his healing. Their faith, his forgiveness. I mean, so we can ask, is the point this morning, what many of us have probably heard when somebody preached in this text, that, hey, Ravenswood family, I want to encourage you to have faith, to bring your unbeliever friends to church so that they might have faith and be saved. Is that the point? You don't have to carry them on a bed. So, Jesus sees your faith so that your friends then have faith. So is that the question? I I actually don't think that's what the text means. Jesus saw their faith. So how does a paralytic get his sins forgiven and healed based on the faith of others? I'm going to tell you something that no pastor ever wants to tell you. I don't know. I don't know. Might be good for us to learn how to say that every once in a while. I don't know. I mean, it cannot mean, we, we know that it cannot mean that the friends of the paralyzed man had faith and because of their faith that man was forgiven. It cannot mean that because the, the story of Scripture, the message of the Scriptures is not that. It cannot mean that as a parent that I have faith and therefore because I have faith, my kids have faith that my faith is now accounted to them. We know that Scripture says that you are saved based on faith that you exercise in Jesus Christ. My kids cannot be saved based on faith that I exercise. So we know it's not the faith of those men that got those, that, that man healed and saved. It, it, that's not the story of Scripture. But apparently, there's something glorious about Christian faith being exercised in friendship. There's something that our Lord finds beautiful, redemptive, powerful, necessary about our faith being exercised 
in friendship. Listen, five Christians trying to exercise their faith in Jesus together next to one another, five Christians exercising their faith in Jesus next to one another is far stronger than five Christians trying to exercise faith all on their own. Don't miss that. Five Christians exercising their faith in friendship together is stronger than five Christians trying to exercise their faith in isolation. I mean, the wisdom of Solomon in in Ecclesiastes 4 tells us that two are better than one. The wisdom of Solomon tells us that it's better that there's two than one because if one falls, he can lift up the other. He goes on later on to say that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I'm just going to present to you that I told you I don't know how this, is, how this works in the heart and mind of an infinite God. All I know is that Jesus sees something beautiful about friendship in our faith. He thinks it glorious when we exercise faith together. He's the kind of Savior who sees beauty in the togetherness and the friendship of one and another and having their faith strengthened. Uh, One of them was in need in this story. One of them is in need. Four of them brought him. Four of them said, we want to help our friend in need. And I believe this morning Jesus honors faith-fueled friendship. He stirred to action, Jesus says. He stirred to action because of their friendship in faith. Let me ask you a, a pointed question today. Do you have four friends like this? Please don't dismiss me. Do you have four friends like this? Do you have one friend like this? Now I'm going to say that's not the point of this passage, but it's really hard to preach this text without saying to Christians, we have lost the beautiful art of being friends. We're too busy. A brother's in need, we can't find four people to carry a bed to get them to Jesus. Do you have a friend like this? Are you a friend like this? Are you? In 1 Samuel 23, King Saul is seeking the life of David, who's going to be the king, right? But David and his men of 600 are hiding from Saul in the wilderness. And 1 Samuel 23, 16 tells us that Jonathan, who is Saul's son, by the way, his dad is trying to kill David. He's... Jonathan is David's best pal. Jonathan comes out to the wilderness to see David. And we're seeing in 1 Samuel 23 some of the most precious words in Scripture regarding friendship. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood, into the wilderness, into the woods, into the forest. And notice these words. And strengthened his hand in God. Let me ask you something. Men. Men in this church, do you have a man in your life who strengthens your hand in God? Who is it? You've got a note sheet there. Put his name on that paper because you're blessed if you have it. Ladies, do, do you have, do you have a, a friend who strengthens your hands in the Lord? Are we being those kinds of friends? 
If the answer today is no, I don't have that and I am not that, then I want to encourage you today by the grace of God. I want to encourage you by the grace of God to seek to be that friend. Don't wait. Start today with somebody here. Literally, just do the creepiest thing in the world and walk up to somebody after church and say, I just want to be your friend. Try it. The person may run, but just run after them. We all laugh, but here's the problem. Listen very closely. I'm going to be that that punchy pastor for a minute. We have allowed our individualism as Westerners to infiltrate the church. The truth is, we don't know how to be friends with one another. We're afraid that somebody might actually need us. We're afraid. Somebody might ask us for, like, I need some help. Do you have a friend like this guy? Do you have four? Do you have one? Are you a friend like this? I Honestly, I pray that this is that kind of church where somebody will come and not find a friendly church, but they can actually come to Ravenswood and find friends. Not friendliness, friends. Friendliness is easy because we hope somebody else will be friendly. But friends means that I have to seek to become a friend. Number two, I want you to see in this text, there's a determination in faith. Determined in faith. Verse 2, and straightway many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them, not so much as about the door. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press. Now, that's not the press. Like, you and I know the press. It's the crowd that's filled this house. They uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. They uncovered the roof. They broke it up. Now, in this day, roofs would have been sticks, thatch, mud roofs kind of stuff. You can picture it. They ripped the roof off (laughs) to get the one who was sick of the palsy to Jesus. I would say that in a church like ours, many, unfortunately, many in here are lacking real abounding joy and passion in Jesus. You're you're lukewarm in your joy. And you might be wondering why that is the case. Without pulling any punches, the reason you're lukewarm in your joy in Christ today is because you're lukewarm in your faith. Your joy is tepid today because your faith is tepid. Your joy is weak Because right now, for whatever reason, your faith is weak. Now, when we think of faith, it's one of those good church words, right? What do we mean? Well, the New Testament speaks of faith in two ways. So, to understand what we mean by being determined in faith, number one, your faith is what you believe. It's the content. It's the content of what you believe. It's the faith in the New Testament. The second way the New Testament speaks of faith is to put your weight onto something. The illustration, obvious illustration of that is the chair that you sat on this morning when you came in. You didn't examine it, I don't think. You didn't pick it up, check the legs, make sure they're good, make sure the cushion wouldn't move. You just came in and you sat down. It's to put your weight on something that is trustworthy. So when the Bible speaks of faith, it's to put your weight onto Christ, if you will. 
And again, some of us go through seasons, we might be in that season right now, when we're lacking faith. It might be that you're here today and it's time for you to make that decision to place your faith in Jesus, to put your weight on Christ to be your Savior. It might be time for you to just go ahead and join the Christian team to, to just say, you know what, Jesus is sufficient. He is, a, he is my Savior. He can be my Savior. He can be my Lord. And so you place your weight on Christ in salvation. But there's others in here. You have faith. You're a Christian, but right now you're living lukewarm. Your faith is cooled. The truth is you're determined and tenacious about other things. You're, you're tenacious and determined about your career. You're tenacious about giving your kids a, a, a chance to succeed however you define success. You're passionate you're determined about your appearance and fitness and food and diet and exercise. We're all determined about a bunch of stuff. The Cub fans in here are determined and excited about opening day on Thursday and all God's people said amen. We're all determined about things. We're all tenacious about things. Listen, the problem for most of us is we simply, we simply failed to put Jesus at the highest place in the hierarchy of our life. Something else is there or someone else is there and we wonder why we're miserable and joyless as Christians. Now, why does this matter? It matters because the joy found in Christ, listen very carefully, it comes actually from rip the roof off type of faith. The joy to be found in Jesus doesn't come from being tepid in your faith or slow in your faith. The joy that's found in Christ is when you know Jesus is enough and you're all about ripping roofs off to get to Jesus. What's going on inside of you is that for many, since you came to Christ, you came to the house, you came to get what you needed from Jesus, but you saw it was full. You saw it was full. You didn't want to go out of your way for it. It's too much. I don't want to squeeze in this house. I don't want to do this. And, and instead of going up to the roof and tearing the roof off, you went to the Sea of Galilee and you started fishing. You went down the street to get some fish and chips. You went to the new coffee shop in Capernaum. But you were not willing, most, in, most Christians are not willing to climb up to the roof and rip off the roof to get to Jesus. And that's why we lack joy. That's why we lack joy. There's no other way around it. And here's the deal. Many of us have been around the kind of sermons that would stop right here. Where the pastor said to you, are you that kind of friend? Do you have that kind of faith? And you might be sitting here today going, good grief, I'm beat up this morning. <laughs> and we often will stop right there, won't we? Having friendships of faith is important. Being a friend in faith is important being determined and tenacious in your faith, it matters significantly, but this is a major problem. Listen very carefully. My friend, listen. Faith is not the end of your Christian life. Don't miss this. Faith is not the end of your Christian life. Faith is the instrument 
through which you see everything in your Christian life. Best way I can say that is to use another normal, regular illustration. If you walked up to me today and said, hey, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm just walking around today looking at my glasses. Everywhere I'm going, I'm just going to look at my glasses. I need to see the time, but instead of looking, I'm just going to look at my glasses. They're nice glasses. Look at those things. They fit my face. They make a bald guy look okay at times. Right? You'd say, why don't you put them on? And so you put on, and now I can see the clock. And all of God's people are like, thank the Lord he can see the clock this morning. The point is, my glasses are like faith. Faith is not the goal. But faith lets you see the object for which you are looking. And so when we go from friendship and faith to being determined about our faith, we want to go all the way to, to say, who are we looking at? So I want you to see, thirdly, I want you to see the object of faith quickly. And again, in all this, I want to, I want to shock you for a moment. Some of you are going to get really unsettled. You actually, you don't need faith. Bear with me. When I say you don't need faith, I follow that up and say, you need Christ. If you had faith all by itself, it wouldn't be enough. What or whom is the object of your faith? And the object here is through the instrument of faith to see Jesus. Faith is not the end. Faith is a means to the end to see Christ. And so, for us, we often consume our Christian lives with focusing on ourselves. We make our lives, our, our, our Christian life, our faith, everything. We, we come to church and go, how strong is my faith? Is it roof-ripping off kind of a faith? I mean, how determined is my faith? What kind of friend am I being right now? I want to just encourage you to back off the eye. And I want you to focus on the object of faith. Because here's what you need to remember. The four men here did not sit outside the house. They didn't sit outside the house. They didn't sit outside the house and, we, and say, we believe Jesus is powerful enough to heal our friend through the house. They didn't do that, did they? They ripped the roof off to get to Jesus. Look at verse 5. When they saw and Jesus saw their faith, he said in the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Thy sins be forgiven thee. It was about getting to Jesus. It was all about getting to Jesus. It will only ever be about getting to Jesus. Don't miss this. Your entire Christian life is all about you getting to Jesus. That's it. It's just you getting to Jesus. 
It's not you living under the constant microscope of how strong is my faith, how strong is my faith, how strong is my faith. If you're sitting here today and you go, I, I want to have roof-ripping-off kind of a faith, the answer is not to focus on the fact that your faith is not roof-ripping-off kind of a faith. Here's the answer. You ready? The answer is found in a simple, a simple illustration. If I walked up to two college-age young men today, one of them is engaged to be married. One of them is just enjoying single life. He's not dating, not engaged. And I asked both of those men to describe love. One's engaged, one's not even dating. And we came to the one and said, listen, you're not dating. Can you describe love? He might describe love in the most abstract way, right? But when I go to the one who's engaged and I say, hey man, tell me about love. Do you know what's going to form his view of love? The object of his love. He will be quick to tell you about love. I am so madly in love with whatever her name is. And here's why I love her. And let me tell you about her eyes. Let me tell you about her ears. Let me tell you about her, her hair. Let me tell you about her personality. Let me tell you about her love for Jesus. I just love, 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 right? You wouldn't be surprised. You go, this guy's in love. Obviously, he's getting married. What has formed his love? Having someone to love. So what is it that forms my faith? What is it that gives me the roof-ripping-off kind of a faith? It's not focusing on the strong or how weak my faith is. It's focusing on the object of faith. It's me saying, I just got to get to Jesus today. Monday morning, I got to get up, and I know I got to get to work, but before I go there, I got to get to Jesus. I know I got to go here, but I got to get to Jesus. I got to be with Jesus because Jesus, as Thomas Watson said, he is infinitely and superlatively lovely. He's the most amazing and delightful object. And so if I fix my eyes on Jesus, my faith gets taken care of. It's all about Jesus. I'm not here to tell you you're a bad friend or a great friend. I'm not here to tell you that your faith is weak or strong or great. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the most glorious object. Focus all of your eyes on Jesus today. And your faith will be strengthened. Do we need a resurgence of roof ripping off kind of faith? Of course we do. You bet we do. But you know how we get it? We get it by fixating our mind and our eyes and heart on Jesus. Like the leper had to get to Jesus. Like Peter's mother-in-law was desperate for Jesus. Like the sick ones in Capernaum had to have Jesus. But not just seeing your greatest need for Him, but by seeing Him for who He truly is in all of His beauty and all of His glory. I'm disjoining the passage from, or the story, so let me take you to the final part of this. And I want you to see the greatest outcome of faith. Look at verse 6, and we're going to be quick here. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? When Jesus had told the man, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. These guys, the scribes are sitting there going, this guy is speaking blasphemies. Now blasphemy is speaking irrelevant, uh, irreverently about God claiming to do something only God could do. The book of Leviticus told us, told the Israelites that somebody who blasphemed was to be stoned. What, in the minds of these scribes, in the minds of these scribes, Jesus is committing blasphemy. 
This is the two questions they ask, and I want you to think about it. Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Is he saying he can do something that God can do? Absolutely. Is he, is he, are they, is there a question right? Who can forgive sins but God only? Absolutely. Both questions are right, are, 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 are fair questions. Look at verse 8. And immediately when Jesus perceived in the spirit that they so reasoned within their, themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your heart? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. Now listen very carefully to this. I know you've been listening for a little bit, but stay with me and try to think about this. Look at Jesus' question. Why reason ye these things in your hearts, whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk? What's the answer to Jesus' question? Which one is easier? Which one's easier? And here's the answer. It's easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee. Because it does not have to be verifiable. Jesus could say, yeah, your sins are forgiven. No, nothing, nothing empirically verifies that Jesus, what Jesus said is true. Right? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But then, to tell this man to take up his bed and walk, it's harder because if the man doesn't take up his bed and walk, Jesus is going to shown, be shown to be a false prophet. So which question is easier? Sins be, which statement's easier? Thy sins be forgiven thee. In our mind, we know it's, we know though that it is actually harder to have your sins forgiven before God than to be healed. So keep going in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Remember, power is not strength, but the authority. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. Listen very carefully. Jesus did the harder thing to say. He did the harder thing to say. And the easier to do. So that he could underscore that he had the authority to do the thing that was easier to say but harder to do. And I know you got confused on that. But it matters. Jesus did the harder thing to say first. Secondly, son Take up thy bed and walk. That was the harder thing to say because it needed to be verified. And so what happens? When that happens, Jesus verifies that he is also God who can say, your sins be forgiven. Look at verse 12. And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it in this fashion. Remember, it's the same people. It was the same people who, when Jesus cast the unclean spirit out in the synagogue in Capernaum, that they said, we've never heard it like this before. Never seen anything like this. Now listen very closely as we kind of bring it to a conclusion here. I don't know, listen, try to, try to stay with me for the next couple minutes. I don't know a passage in Scripture that diagnoses the real issue of our life more clearly. I don't know of one. The men brought the man with the palsy to Jesus. He had a real issue, right? He couldn't walk. He was paralyzed. It was a real issue. It wasn't fake. It wasn't made up. It was a real issue. 
Jesus first forgives him of his sins. Now, many of you realize that recently my dad had gone to the hospital for a kidney issue. What if they had gone in and they ran a bunch of tests and the doctor came in and said, you know, Mr. Moore, I got some really, really good news for you. You came in with this major issue to have your kidney fixed, your blockage removed. I just want you to know, Mr. Moore, good news, really good news. We paid off your car. My dad would sit there probably and say, wonderful. But I didn't come in to get my car paid off. I need my kidneys to function. You, think that's, you might think that's a silly example. But imagine these men. They're standing there and they're thinking, we just ripped the roof off Peter's house because our man, our friend can't walk. And you forgive his sins? What is Jesus telling us? The greater issue, the greater issue is that this man has a deeper issue than his inability to walk, right? That's what Jesus is telling us in this. The deeper issue is not paralysis of the legs. The deeper issue is you need your sins forgiven. So with all that, let me say two things and then give you a couple questions. First off, First off, the best friend in this text is the one who deals with the greater issue. Don't miss this. The best friend in this text is the one who deals with the greatest issue. Now, I asked you earlier, do you have four friends like this? But the four friends in the text are not the main friend to see. Are they friends? Yes. Do they matter? Yes. But who's the best friend in the text? The best friend in the text is the one who says, Son, thy sins be forgiven you. He's the best friend in the story. So when you leave today and you might be tempted to go, I just want to be a better friend, I want to be a better friend. The point of the text is to see juxtaposed to the four friends that Jesus is the real friend here. He's the real friend. And the gospel tells us that Jesus invites all of us to be friends. And because the gospel invites all of us to become friends, hear me very carefully, Jesus now calls us to be friends with his friends. And the truth is, Jesus is just the friend that we need, but he loves it when we are friends with his friends. He loves it when we are friends with his friends. So who's the best friend? It's Jesus. Second, that I want you to see, your second statement. Let me remind you of something important. People do not die and go to hell because of sin. They die and go to hell because of unforgiven sin. It's very, very important that we make the distinguishing reality in that. People do not die and go to hell because of sin. They go to hell because of unforgiven sin. The question today in your own life is how have you received forgiveness for your sins? If you're trying to earn it, good luck. You can't. 
And I don't want to soften this. I don't want to sim- simplify it. I just want to remind you that the only reason, the only reason that anyone goes to hell is because their sins have not been forgiven. And if you're here today and you have not received the forgiveness available in Christ, I plead with you to receive it. Questions, two questions. <clears throat> what if the man would have been healed and not forgiven? What if the man had been healed and not forgiven? This, this, matters, this matters into how you view the real issues of our world. What if the man had been healed but never forgiven? And he had how many, however many years of walking, but his eternity was in hell. I want to ask you something. Think of your greatest physical need right now. What if you had that but didn't have Jesus? Would it matter? Would it matter? What about how we see the world? If we saw, man, there's a need there and there's a need there and there are legitimate needs. Jesus doesn't say that the man's inability to walk doesn't matter. There's real issues and as Christians, we see the real needs and we recognize them for what they are. There are human needs that Christ has compassion for and we should have compassion for. But the greatest need is for the world to know that somebody has come to forgive their sins. Let us not neglect that message. So what if this man had been healed and not forgiven? Secondly and lastly, where did this man's sins go? Where did this man's sins go? Let me ask you this. When your sins were forgiven, where'd they go? Listen, here's the point of this. And this is, this is central to the gospel. If God is holy and just, he cannot just snap his fingers and make sin disappear. The penalty for sin had to fall someplace. So where did this man's sins go? And here's the answer. The, the end of the Gospel of Mark, like the end of every one of the four Gospels, the end of the Gospel of Mark does not, end, does not tell us that Jesus stretches out his arms wide on the cross and tells every crippled man to walk. It's not what Mark tells us. Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus hung on the cross and said, everyone who's demon-possessed, be free. That's not what the Gospels say. Where did the man's sins go? The end of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus stretched out wide on the cross, inviting this man and every man, every man, woman, and children to place their faith, their spiritual weight in him and to find in Jesus all of their sins forgiven because he took them on him on the cross. So what happens? We're going to see this over and over again. So get ready for it. The Gospel of Mark tells us of a Savior who trades places with this man. And he traded places with you. He traded places with this crippled man. And he said, your sins are going to be forgiven because I'm going to take them on me. So that you can receive forgiveness. That's what happened. The reason you found forgiveness is not that your, your sins disappeared. is that every one of your sins was put on Christ. And he took guilt, shame, sin, moral punishment on the cross so that this man and you and me could spiritually stand up and walk free in Christ. That's the point. So we go back to what we said. 
the problem. Listen, this is the offense of the gospel. The problem is inside of you. It's your sin. The problem is inside of you, not outside of you. The answer is not inside of you. The answer is outside of you in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the gospel tells you there's an answer to your problem. So our church family, I want to encourage you to walk together in faith, realizing it's a joy to be friends with Jesus' friends. As you look around this room this morning, there's a bunch of Christians here. Guess who they are? They're friends of Christ. And they're to be your friends too. Let's be determined in our faith with our eyes fixed on the object of our faith because Jesus has healed us of our greatest issue, our unforgiven sin. Let's pray. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.